Well, why, why do we obey God? What motivates you to be godly? It can be in a number of things, can't it? I mean, it could be guilt that motivates you, where you know the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, and so out of guilt you try and obey God and do what he says. It could be a sense of duty, uh, where you know that you ought to obey God. I mean, he is God after all, and so out of duty you obey him. It can even be out of a sense of fear, where you think that God's keeping a report card on your life. And if you don't do enough good things, then God's going to be angry with you. And so out of fear, you try and obey him. Or it could be out of gratitude. When you understand some of the incredible things that God has done for you, and your heart is just filled with thankfulness, so out of gratitude, you live for the Lord. What motivates you to be godly, to obey the Lord? Well, today the Apostle Paul reminds us of a profoundly wonderful motivation for our obedience. And it's this, that we would obey God because we want to display his goodness to others. That we'd be so captivated by the love and the mercy and the grace of God that in what we say and think and do, we would bring great honour to our God. Now, friends, do you have that desire in your heart? Do you want the world around you to know that your God is absolutely wonderful? Does this desire burn within you, moving you to be extraordinarily obedient? To help us with this, Paul showcases for us the incredible goodness of God. But in order to fully appreciate it, Paul sets God's goodness against a very dark backdrop so that we'll see God's brilliance shine all the more. Our verses this morning are a little bit like looking at the stars in the sky. Uh, Up on the screen is a picture of a night sky. Not a very good one uh, because against a white background you can barely make out the stars, can you? But put them against a black background, our night sky as it were, and there we have it. A star shines brightly against a dark night sky. Ephesians chapter 2 contains some of the most dazzling truths about God, but just as a star shines brightest against a dark night sky, to fully see the wonder of God in these verses, we first need to appreciate the darkness. And sadly, the darkness is us, left to ourselves, left in our sin. In order for us to understand God's goodness, Paul shows us first the bleakness of what we were without God so that we can then see the brilliance of God in what we are with him. And if we take these things to heart this morning, I will be bursting at the seams to obey our Heavenly Father. So the bleak news first, the dark night sky, as it were, take God out of our lives and what were we? Well, first off, We were dead, dead in our sins, hopelessly, helplessly trapped in our sin. Chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's not a very pleasant thought, is it? We were dead in sin. It's not that we were sort of sinning a bit here and there, but if we just put our minds to it, we could turn this around. No, it's that we couldn't help but sin. 
we were dead in sin. Have you ever seen some roadkill suddenly decide to not be dead anymore? Uh, You know, a kangaroo that's been dead for some days, smeared across the side of the road, crows picking at its flesh, but then the kangaroo decides to live again and bound away? If you're dead, you can't decide to do anything. You're dead. Paul tells us here that before God saved us, we were dead in sin. We couldn't decide to suddenly come alive out of sin. We didn't and we couldn't live for God. We were unresponsive to him, dead to him, hopelessly trapped in sin with no possibility of saving ourselves. We were dead in sin. And that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? But this dark night sky has only yet been tinged with grey. We've got a few shades of darkness to go until we get to black. Things keep getting worse because we weren't just dead in sin. We were also followers of the devil, following his ways along with the rest of the world. Verse 1 again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 2 is telling us that before God saved us, we were followers of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, followers of Satan. Now, before you start thinking, oh, come on, Alan, this is just a bit too much. I mean, I might have told a few white lies in the past, but... I was never this bad. I mean, fair go. I'm not Hitler or Idi Amin. Sinner, maybe, but not dead in sin. And I was certainly never a follower of Satan. If you find yourself balking at these verses, just look again at the end of verse 2. Because following Satan isn't about becoming a witch and having seances and casting spells. We were followers of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. End of verse 2. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient to be a follower of the devil is to simply live a life of disobedience to god there's no mention here is there of spooky seances or crazy satanic rituals it's just being disobedient to god now we can do it politely and we can do it rudely but however we go about it it's just disobedience to god plain and simple that's what it means to follow satan So it's to be selfish and to look after yourself to the detriment of others. It's to lust after money instead of devoting ourselves to God. It's to use and abuse God by only paying him attention when our lives are falling apart. But other than that, God's just to wait patiently in the background until we have need of him as if he's our butler. It's to fail to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And we're all guilty of that. As Paul says, we were dead in sin, followers of Satan, trapped in disobedience. And sadly, we've only yet reached a dark, murky grey when it comes to us as the background to God's brilliance because Paul's got one more dollop of dismal paint to add. And it's this, that because of our sin, we were simply the objects of his wrath. Verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. 
Here we see that we're all guilty of simply giving in to our sinful natures. We followed its desires and thoughts and led away by our sinful natures. We went wherever we were taken. We're lost in sin. And the horrifying but completely fair result of it all is that we were by nature an object of God's wrath. Because of our sin, the only thing any of us deserve from God is his fury. We were teetering on the tightrope of life, waiting to fall into the abyss of the wrath of God. Friends, this is a very, very dark night we're seeing here, isn't it? We were helplessly, hopelessly dead in sin, a follower of the devil, an object of the wrath of God. And it's against this bleak, dark backdrop that verse 4 splashes onto the canvas. Because beginning with verse 4, all the things we've seen so far get reversed. God breaks into our world and into our hearts and changes everything. And it's not that we deserved any of it. Hopefully that's already abundantly clear. But God's incredible goodness is that he'd be gracious even to those who are dead in sin, followers of the devil and objects of his wrath. What we're about to read never ceases to be astonishing. Our God is truly wonderful. Have a look. Previously, without God, we were dead in sin, but now in Christ, God has made us alive. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That is just a remarkable verse, isn't it? Even when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive. This is like the weak old roadkill kangaroo, smeared across the road, having his flesh picked at by the crows, but then really suddenly hopping up and bounding away. Even when we were dead... In sin, God made us alive with Christ because the Lord Jesus died for our sin. He's dealt with our sin. He was raised to life again. Our sins have been dealt with and so he has given us new hearts, new life. We've been made responsive to God, inclined towards him, alive to God, alive with Christ, no longer controlled by our sinful natures. And please notice in verse 4 that God did this for us because of his great love and mercy. He didn't make us alive because he owed us. It's in love that the Father sent the Son to die for our sins. It's in mercy that God hasn't given us what we deserved. Instead, God has made us alive with Christ. No longer trapped helplessly in sin, we can now live for him. But the brilliance of God isn't just that he's made us alive even when we were dead in sin. It's also that even though we were followers of the devil, God has now brought us instead to be with Christ. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Friends, you need to put your thinking caps on and hopefully you were here last week and you can remember from chapter 1 that Christ is already in the heavenly realms and he's there to rule over all things. He's seated at the right hand of the heavenly father and he has there, seated at the right hand of God, all power and authority. 
Here in verse 6, we're told that we've already been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That means we're now under the rule of the Lord Jesus, which means we're no longer under the rule of the devil anymore. We're no longer followers of Satan because God has made us followers of Christ. Friends, are you starting to get a bit of a feel for the splendor of God in these verses? We were followers of the lying, deceitful, murderous devil, but we've been brought to be seated with the merciful and gracious and life-giving Christ. And why has God done this? So that in our lives we would display this beautiful grace of God. Look at verse 7. God's made us alive. He's seated us with Christ. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When it says there in verse 7, in the coming ages, a better translation would be in the ages that have come upon us. Paul's not talking about God showing the riches of his grace in the future. Paul's talking about God doing that now in the ages that have come upon us. Because God's already made us alive. God's already set us free from the devil. Our lives are no longer dominated by sin and Satan. And the fact that helpless sinners like us could be transformed into the people of God, a people who now live wholeheartedly for him, our lives can now showcase this wonderful transforming grace of God. And so we live in obedience to him to show the riches of his grace. But before we think a bit more about obeying God in order to show his goodness, Paul's got one last extravagant splash of brightness to add to the picture. One last reversal to blow our minds with. And it's that whereas once we were by nature objects of wrath, in verses 8 and 9 we see that God has saved us from his fury. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, these verses are beautiful verses. They make it as plain as day. We need God to save us. We cannot save ourselves. Look at it there again in verse 8, the beginning of it. It is by grace that you've been saved. Grace just means an undeserved gift. It's being given something we don't deserve. So to be saved from God's wrath is something we don't deserve. We did not deserve, did we, for Christ to die in our place under the wrath of the Father. We did not deserve him to do that for us. And we also see that we need God to save us because, verse 8 again, it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. Faith simply means trust. And our salvation comes through faith because we have to trust God to save us because we can't save ourselves. We were dead in sin, followers of the devil, and so our salvation is not of ourselves. It is not by works. No one can boast about being saved because God had to do it all for us. We simply trust him to save us. 
In August last year, 17-year-old Matthew Mina was down at Newport Beach in California. And he and a few mates were digging some pretty big tunnels down at the beach and they were trying to make them meet. But when Matthew climbed into his hole, the surrounding sand collapsed and put him literally six feet under, completely covered in almost two metres of sand. His cousin saw it happen, alerted the lifeguards. Several beachgoers tried to desperately dig Matt Matthew out. Search and rescue teams poured in from three communities. Here's a photo of the situation. Witnesses said that after the rescue efforts had been going for more than 15 minutes, they were sure Matthew wasn't going to come out alive. And it wasn't until after 30 minutes of being buried, they finally reached Matthew's body. And he was alive. Afterwards, Matthew said he thought he was going to die and the Newport Fire uh, Chief said Matthew was very lucky to have survived. Now, did Matthew contribute to being saved that day? Of course not. Can he claim any credit for coming out alive? Of course not. Would he have lived if others hadn't have come to save him? Of course not. What was the only thing Matthew contributed to his situation? He got himself in trouble. And that is just like us and God. The only thing we contribute to our situation between God and us is our sin. We've gotten ourselves into trouble with God. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And like Matthew needed someone else to come and save him, we need someone else to come and save us. And that someone else is God himself, the Lord Jesus died and risen again for us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. So if you're here this morning as one of those who trust in Christ to save you, brothers and sisters, look again at the brilliance of God on display here. Remember again the bleak, disgusting background of our own lives, that even though we were dead in sin, followers of the devil and objects of the wrath of God, yet out of the grace and love and mercy of God, he has made us alive, brought us to be with Christ, and saved us from his wrath. And so our hearts delight in God. We rejoice, don't we, in Christ our Saviour, and we wonder why Paul had to write verse 10. Because we already know verse 10. We already want verse 10. But just in case, to spell it out in black and white, Paul wrote verse 10 to tell us what God has done all of this for. It's so that we would obey him. Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, I'm hoping that given what we've already read in chapter 2, I'm hoping it's really obvious that we would now live in good works because we were horribly trapped in sin, followers of the devil and objects of God's wrath. But by the wonderful grace of God, we've been saved from it all so that now we have the privilege, we've been set free to live for our God and Saviour. We can now walk in his good works. And as we understand this kindness and this grace of God, aren't we just bursting at the seams to obey him? Aren't we wanting our lives to show the wonder of his grace? This is why we live his way. 
This is why we live in obedience to our God, because we want to bring him honour. And so this week, as we go about our lives, let's have this stamped on our hearts, that everything we say and think and do would bring honour and praise to our God, that everything we do would, would show the riches of his grace. So as we discipline our children, let's do it in a way that shows them the magnificence of our God. As we're faced with sexual temptation, let's run away for the sake of the honour of our God. As we go about our work, let's work as if we're working for the Lord. As we mix with people that we don't really get along with, Let's be patient with them as God has been patient with us. As we speak to one another, let's only say what is helpful for building the others up. Even as we mingle this morning over morning tea, let's imitate God in the way that he has loved us so that we would then love one another. And when we wrong one another, let's display the grace of God by forgiving each other just as in Christ God has forgiven us. Friends, everything we say or think or do, for the love of God, for the honour of God, for the reputation of our great God and Heavenly Father, let's obey him. Let's walk in his good works. His good works. Let's celebrate and let's show the grace of our God in the way that we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just astounded at your goodness to us. It takes us aback that that even though we were dead in sin, followers of the devil, objects of your wrath, and yet because of your great love for us, because you are rich in mercy, out of your grace, you have saved us, made us alive, seated us with your Son, made us your very people, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to show your incomparable riches of your grace. Father, thank you. Thank you for the honour and the privilege of being your people. Father, in our lives we want to show how majestic you are. So please fill us with strength to be obedient to you. And Father, fill us with love that we would help one another to bring you honour and praise. Father, for the sake of your Son. Amen.